Thank you, Maureen. And uh, I'd like to welcome everyone, too. Um, tonight we actually have a topic, um, and that topic is impermanence, which is uh, a very important topic in Buddhist meditation. And it also fits in with, um, with some of the other central topics in Buddhist meditation. So I'll be giving a little overview of what those are, which might be especially interesting to those of you who are new to this sort of practice. Impermanence isn't that much different in in Buddhist terminology um, than it than it is in the ordinary sense that we use the word impermanence. The usual sense of transitory and not lasting and unstable. Um, but it is a little different, and we will come to that as I go through the talk. Um, impermanence is one of the three central marks or characteristics of existence according to the Buddha and therefore in, in, Buddhist, um, in Buddhist philosophy. So there are three of these central facts of existence. Impermanence, um, which is pointed to in the Buddhist scriptures, the Pali Canon, as being the central of these marks of existence. Impermanence or change, which in Pali is anicca, and unsatisfactoriness, sometimes translated as suffering, dukkha, and not self or insubstantiality, anatta. So these three marks, these three characteristics, not only characterize human life, but all life, and not only all life, but they apply to everything we can know in the cosmos. Uh, and we could go on and on um, citing references from ancient philosophers through contemporary physics and astrophysics and astronomy um, that, that support, in fact, this kind of view of the world that says everything is impermanent, everything is in flux. But we don't have time to do that tonight, so we'll just skip that part. You, you, you can find plenty on this, on the internet and, um, and very many places, in books, of course. If you, if you uh, type in Anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A, uh, if you Google that, you'll, you'll get a, a lot of uh, references. Maybe an overwhelming amount, actually. So another interesting fact about these um, three marks of existence and characteristics is that they are interrelated. And in fact, when one of them is present, when impermanence is present, for example, all of them are present. There's also insubstantiality and there's also unsatisfactoriness. The central one, that, or the middle one, that, I'm, that I've put in this particular list uh, sometimes they have a different order in different um, scriptures, different suttas. Um, doesn't apply to non to um, 
to other forms of existence in the universe or cosmos other than humans. So humans have the particular ability to know um, unsatisfactoriness or suffering and that is because we have consciousness. In any case, all three of these are present for us uh, moment after moment throughout all of our lives. And actually other, um, other life forms can also feel a kind of an unsatisfactoriness, perhaps at a different level. And even the smallest insect will feel unsatisfactoriness when, you get to, when it feels threatened. And it will recoil, it will do certain things, take certain actions to let you know that. So, um, as one writer, one um, monastic writer, contemporary, wrote about um, impermanence, that all these things, all these component things, uh, he gave us this analogy for the interrelationship. That is, all things that arise because of cause and effect. That's another characteristic of all these three marks of existence is that they all are conditioned and arise because of cause and effect. It's, it's a, a really quite a wonderful logical philosophical system which we also won't have time to get into very deeply tonight but, um, but everything has this interrelation and everything arises at these at the same time. And this is also found, this sort of world view is also found in, in other places than Buddhism, the ones I cited earlier. So this monk, uh, Piyadasitara, writes, all component things, that is all things which arise as causes and effects and give effects, can be crystallized by the single word impermanence. All tones, therefore, are just variations struck on the chord which is made up of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, or not-soul, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So when all this is going on, at many levels and throughout all times, from nanoseconds through eons, um, or there's a wonderful Sanskrit word that's also used in early Buddhism, kalpas. And a kalpa is a unit of time that's incalculable, but the analogy is, the metaphor is, it's, it's the incalculable time that it would take uncounted generations of eagles with silk scarves in their beaks to wear the Himalayas down to grains of sand. So, and there's a famous verse, a very famous verse in um, early Buddhism in, from, the, from a, a scripture called the Diga Nikaya, which is a, a collection of sayings from the Buddha that were actually written down after, um, after the Buddha's death, some two or three hundred years. It's not quite ascertained when. It's quite interesting to read these uh, in light of and remember that they weren't written down until later. And the, the kind of sophisticated um, philosophy argumentation and logic that went on, of course it also went on in Hinduism, was quite remarkable. So this verse that the Buddha said, um, 
shortly before he died, according to one scripture, goes like this. Impermanent are all component things. They arise and cease, that is their nature. They come into being and pass away. Release from them is bliss supreme. We had a little taste of that as we sat this evening being with our breathing. Uh, Our breathing is one of these compounded things, one of these things that, another way to say that, there are several translations and I will give you other words too um, that that sort of put a picture together more. But um, these... uh, The breathing depends on our being here, and it depends on having the condition of a certain kind of of outside, if you will, ambience that we live in, in other words, air, uh, which is also in turn conditioned on certain um, elements being present in certain mixes. So this is, and we could, you can see where we could go on from there, just with this very supposedly simple example of breathing, how interrelated everything is. Um, so another uh, translation of this is impermanent, alas, are all conditions arising and passing away. And having been born, they must all cease. The calming of conditions is true happiness. This is a very ancient saying, and it is recited to this day um, in Theravada Buddhist countries, which are Southeast Asian, um, uh, Thailand and Sri Lanka and um, Burma are some of them. And they're, they're, they're chanted at many ceremonies, but always at funerals and at sort of birth ceremonies or christening ceremonies. so people are reminded in those cultures that of these things, that all things are conditioned, all things are impermanent, they will cease, and the calming of these conditions is true happiness. And this is one of the basic and very central teachings of the Buddha. He famously said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering or unsatisfactoriness and the end of suffering. So what the Buddha did in a sense uh, and why people are still interested in Buddhism, I believe, is that he, he laid out in a very clear way what, what it is that we feel and notice as human beings and what, what these forces do that impinge on us and how we find it very difficult to, to deal with that. Um, the existentialist philosophers tried to deal with that. The, the Rolling Stones wrote a song about it. I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try. But trying and trying, that's what we're doing. Um, the important piece to remember um, of, what, of that one statement the Buddha says is the end of suffering. So um, this is the way it is and we need to be able to see the way it is clearly in order to find the methods, the ways to end uh, our dilemma, if you will, 
to find this true happiness or bliss supreme. So this, um, this strategies that the Buddha outlined, the methodologies to, to look at, to be aware of, and to, um, to understand more deeply these characteristics, are the, fourth, the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is just recognizing that there is this unsatisfactoriness and it's part of our lives. And of course, we kind of do know about impermanence because, you know, everything seems to be impermanent in a certain way. But um, the Buddha is pointing to a deeper kind of knowledge. And we'll come to how we understand that. So the second noble truth is that there are causes for the stress and unsatisfactoriness that we experience. And the central one of those is craving. And it has three fundamental manifestations. Greed, hatred, and ignorance. Um, And the origin of this craving is rooted in our our deep ignorance of our impermanent self-nature and the depth of our suffering. So we know at certain levels that we are impermanent and we see our parents pass on or or our pets die or whatever it might be, a plant. I mean, we know that at a certain level, but we don't know quite the level of of how of how much we we are conditioned to act with these manifestations through greed, hatred and ignorance. And then the third truth um, is what the Buddha encapsulated in that one in that phrase, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. The third truth is suffering and anguish can cease we can, in a sense, let go of our craving and dispel our ignorance. And the fourth truth is um, sort of the ways to do it. So that's the Eightfold Noble Path. And Buddhism, especially for you who have um, a lot of experience with it, has very many of these lists and paths and things that are numerical. not a noble path, but you know there are many ways to do things, and that's a lot because if when things aren't written down, it's helpful to have these mnemonic, dev- these memory devices to to say, oh yes, the eightfold path, the noble truths. So the fourth truth is that there are these specific ways we can free ourselves of ignorance and of this craving and clinging to conditional illusions. So these are ways that address how we can be in the world and live according to our human nature and according to our deepest nature and our clearest nature. So central to dispelling our ignorance is cultivation of our minds. And the Pali word for this is bhavana and that actually means mental cultivation. Those are the two roots of that word 
And it has been translated, it's sort of traditional now, if you will, to translate that as meditation. Uh, and meditation is maybe a little more complex. It works well enough, but um, it's also handy for me to remember that it's about mental cultivation because meditation can mean and have this sense of you know, sitting down and getting sort of spaced out or, or quiet or, you know, it can mean a lot of different things actually. But, um, but what we're doing really with, um, in the meditation practice is cultivating clarity and insight in our minds. So, and I'll talk about just three of these because once again we don't have uh, each one of these you know, things that I'm just mentioning is, um, is the subject of many talks and you know, many books and uh, the Pali Canon itself is like an old-fashioned Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, it's huge and that's without the commentaries. So, you know, it's, it's quite uh, vast. Um, but there's one rec- fairly recent translator, mid-20th century, a very talented and dedicated practitioner and translator of the Pali Suttas uh, into modern English. Some people did this in the 19th century too. This is a man who, uh, who originally came from Germany and he lived in Sri Lanka most of his life as a monk. His name is Nayanaponikatera. And he has a real talent for putting things in a nutshell. So I'm going to quote for, from Nayanaponika. Existence can be understood only if these three basic facts, that is, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and insubstantiality, not permanent self or soul, are comprehended. These three basic facts are comprehended. And this not only logically, but in confrontation with one's own experience. Insight, wisdom, seeing into these characteristics of life, which is the ultimate liberating factor in Buddhism, consists just of this experience of the three characteristics applied to one's own bodily and mental processes and deepened and matured in meditation. So I'll focus a little bit on impermanence and see how we might understand that in in light of the some of the Eightfold Path and what Nyanaponika Tara just um, said. That to understand these three characteristics, applying it to ourselves, to just what we have here. The Buddha also famously said that in even a, a shorter formulation. He said, this fathom-long body, more or less six feet. This fathom-long body is all we need to arrive at complete liberation and freedom from the stresses, the suffering, the anguish of the constant flux, the fact that we're not substantial, that we're not going to be forever. Um, It's all we need. Just what we have here, body and mind together. So, and our motivation for focusing on this, for being here tonight, it's what brings everyone to meditation, is the same that it's been true of all humans. 
in very many ways people have tried to experience this release from suffering to understand what is our deepest nature and what this freedom is about and to understand our misunderstandings to understand what keeps us what keeps us suffering what keeps us uneasy unhappy if you will so I, I want to emphasize again what Nyanaponika pointed to experience is the key it's the total mind-body experience that through that's how this insight the insights that we're here at Insight Meditation Center that's how they're accessed is through meditative practices through cultivation of our minds so here it is when we are put ourselves in these meditative places that we can pay careful attention to impermanence and to all the conditions that arise with it suffering, unease and we can see ever more clearly also that we possess no substance but we in fact are as impermanent as rain or snow it's just we have a different time frame but so when we cultivate our minds through meditation and practice we have the possibility to in- integrate our insight within our whole body mind heart Buddhism understands as much of current um, neurological research and psychological research does that we are a process that's inseparable human beings are of course many things are processes Um, in fact all things Um, but we are a particular one that has these elements that we kind of divide up mind-body in in Buddhism actually uh, mind-heart citta is a term that that's used as one term and there's no real translatable term for that in English or other modern languages that I know and I I know just a few romance languages but but Chita, it already has a more integrated feel. But actually, we're kind of a whole psycho-physical, spiritual system all together, total one mind, body, heart. The thing that meditation allows us to do is to slow down enough to see how this process is working and to see into these deeper levels of the process that we're living through. So of course impermanence we see that all around as I mentioned earlier that's a natural aspect of of our growing up of human maturity you know children don't have much of a sense of it for them everything lasts forever you know when will we get there you know all of that you know so but um, but as we grow and experience we see that impermanence is the order of things uh, everything man-made things animals humans even earth forms mountains rivers and even you know the earth's ecosystem itself now we can see that it's it's all in flux and changing and at different scales too and we can understand this very deeply but the difference that that Buddhism sees and says is that we seldom understand it with any ease even if we understand it deeply uh, in an intellectual way or even in an experiential way through growing older and seeing as I said our parents die 
But through meditation practice, we have the possibility of seeing how we can how we can see into these deeper levels. And here's a quotation from the Buddha. The perceiving of impermanence, developed and frequently practiced, removes all sensual passion, removes all passion for material existence, removes all passion for becoming, removes all ignorance, removes and abolishes all conceit of I am. So, that's a lot. The operative terms here are developed and frequently practiced. <laughs> you know, this is, this is really, you know, the, the intellectual and even the experiential at, 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 at a very, um, without an insight, at, at a level without insight, does not penetrate to the roots of impermanence. So, so the Buddha, as he frequently did in these, in these um, stories, they were really Dharma talks that he was giving. The whole Pali Canon is really like a lot of Dharma talks. He talked to a lot of people, and he had a lot of he, he collected a lot of followers in a, in his short life, which I guess from 35 to 80, he he, he taught. He used a lot of analogies, and um, and here's one that was from the same the same discourse. Just as in the autumn a farmer plowing with a large plow cuts through all the spreading rootlets as he plows, in the same way perceiving impermanence developed and frequently practiced removes all sensual passion, removes and abolishes all conceit of I am. So in other words that the plow is sort of an analogy of the big, the large plow of these meditation practices um, that that will get down to the roots, will get down to the um, to the really radical place we where we can actually see how these things are operating. We can see them, feel them, and everything at the same time as as we develop and practice them. So, um, some other terms I wanted to point out that are important to understand because they're used in a, this is a fairly old translation, um, um, are, are used in a particular sense, passion, because sometimes people misunderstand like Buddhism, oh, you're not supposed to have passion, then, you know, um, or they confuse it with sexual passion or sensual passion in the way that we typically use it here in the West. But passion in this context is aligned with the Latin root of suffering and the way that that's still in, in um, certain uh, Christian traditions that there's the passion of Christ and that's the suffering of Christ on the cross. So it's the passion of, um, of suffering and that is from the Latin root to suffer, from the verb to suffer. Uh, and the sensual refers to the six senses. So it's just, it's not sensual like, uh, like we often use it here. We have a lot of, we have a tendency, particularly in this culture, to kind of load things towards sexuality. But it's not, it uh, refers simply to the six senses. So, um, and those allow the exchange of impressions between our organism and what's outside of us. 
And Buddhism includes, along with, uh, I think there's one other philosophy that does this, the mind in a Greek, ancient Greek philosophy. The mind is also a sense organ in Buddhism. It's sort of the, the collator sense organ. So the, 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 the physical, the other sense organs, sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, and then thought, uh, would be the correlative of the mind. Uh, it, it's the one that apprehends puts things together. And conceit, the conceit of I am, goes to the Latin root of idea or mental conception. In other words, so it's a conceit, it's a construct, the construct of I am. Because we can't see ourselves dissolve as we just ordinarily walk around. Although that sometimes does happen in deep meditative experiences. Um, But we don't really dissolve, so there's nothing to worry about. So it's an idea that we have that we exist. Uh, And it's one we really hold on to because somehow that idea of time is frightening to us. So um, the Buddha continually pointed out that our minds are... Oh, there's this little quote I was going to read again. That which is called mind, which is called thought, is called consciousness, is impermanent, one moment arising and ceasing as another arises and ceases continually, both day and night. So that's the most impermanent, because he says in another place, like our bodies can even last a a year or other bodies, or even maybe a hundred years, but our minds are constantly producing new, this is just a characteristic of mind, it just, somebody has the analogy, a Zen master, Aiken Roshi, says that our minds produce thoughts like our stomach produces digestive juices, you know, it just just goes on, just, the other one I've heard is popcorn, (laughs) and it flies a machine, but but it does seem sort of like that feeling sometimes. So these three... um, these three parts of the Eightfold Path that offer sort of ways, methodologies, strategies for seeing how things truly are at deep and radical levels um, are, 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 are for us to be able to find insight and ease as we live our lives. Um, so there's wise use of energy, or or it's sometimes called wise effort or right effort, and that we could define as perseverance in cultivating skillful states of being and in letting go of unskillful ones. So that would also be a kind of steadfastness of, of of keeping one's meditation practice, or a steadfastness of of looking more deeply. Another one, um, one of the Eightfold Path is clear attention or right mindfulness. There's a special term for clear attention in Buddhism, Sampajana. But the mindfulness, mindfulness is a very key term, particularly in this Theravada practice that we're doing here at Insight Meditation Center. Uh, And I I, I did want to say just give a brief definition of mindfulness. It's that quality of awareness that notices the flux of impermanence, that notices the flux of experience, 
the arising and passing away without judgment. This is just a very condensed and brief definition, but it's a workable one. So that's when we sit in meditation and watch our breath. We're not exactly watching it so much as as being with it, allowing our awareness to just rest with that mindful quality, which is a natural attribute of human beings. All human beings have it. It's a matter of tuning into it. The Buddha also famously said that there's no one who can't practice meditation. It doesn't require any particular intellectual skills, um, cognitive skills, or any kind of skills. If there is an intention and a desire to do it, then one can do it. So there's where wise effort is helpful. So we can bring our awareness to our whole integrated being. And then there's also a kind of, um, another kind of mental cultivation, clear concentration or right concentration. And that has to do with focusing our awareness. So they work hand in hand, this mindfulness that notices the flux and, and concentration, focusing our awareness. Um, We collect and unify our minds, and that's what we cultivate when we um, pay attention to one object, such as our breathing. So that's very, very helpful for us to get settled and calm enough so that insight can arise, so that we can really see and experience uh, what impermanence is and what its implications are uh, for our lives. And then in these concentrations, when we develop and practice them, um, we can have very many experiences of joy and happiness and insight, equanimity. Again, the breath is really powerful and helpful in this. Uh, It seems so simple and and people sometimes feel it's boring, but uh, it has many layers and levels of subtlety and if you just keep with that, Just, of course, your mind always wants to go away, but if you just keep bringing it back slowly, gently, you begin to see things. Well, to end, I'd like to um, read some poetry and then um, and then listen to what you have to say. (coughs) Kindly listen to me all this time. Let's start with um, this uh, poet, the Spanish poet Antonio Machado, um, from the early 20th century. In passing, I notice that I'm growing old, that in the immense mirror where I was gazing proudly at myself one day, It was quicksilver I was putting on. Fate's hand strips away bands of the silver from the mirror in the depths of my house, and everything is passing through it like light through crystal. And another short one from Antonio. 
In my solitude, I have seen very clearly things that are not true and things that are true. And then I'd like to read um, a poem that um, that's from the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the uh, very short sutras from a later era in Buddhism. So shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. That was written, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when, I think it was around, um, let's see, Buddhism is 2,500 years. Um, let's see, maybe around 2,000 years BC. So much before Shakespeare, but of course Shakespeare had uh, our life is but a dream also. And then one um, last one from Antonio, short one. Beyond living and dreaming, what matters most is waking up. And um, this is also, just when I ran across that I thought, Boy, <laughs> I wonder if he read any Buddhism because, of course, the Buddha, Buddha means awake, and that, that's the root word of the Buddha. And the Buddha famously said uh, many times in many ways, but basically, uh, when people would ask him, well, who are you? What are you? They could tell something was different about him. I said, so, what's your story? He said, I'm just awake. I'm awake. I've woken up. So thank you very much for listening, and uh, we have some time for um, comments and questions, if you like, and please uh, use the microphone. Um, simply sit here and develop and cultivate our experience of impermanence through our breathing. Let's do that. <laughs> 